The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Go Green Radio, brought to you by Covanta Energy. Reduce, reuse, recycle. Rethink renewable energy and energy from waste. This program will help start you thinking about how to protect our world and its important resources. Now here's the host for Go Green Radio, Jill Buck. So glad that you could join us today. We have two incredible guests that are going to be talking about a really revolutionary thing that just happened in the school's uh, school lunch program arena, the Urban School Food Alliance, which is made up of a coalition of the largest school districts in the United States, including New York City, Los Angeles, Chicago, Miami-Dade, Dallas, and Orlando, have just announced that they're going to be starting to roll out the use of compostable round plates in their cafeterias instead of polystyrene trays. And this could remove 225 million polystyrene trays from landfills every year. Our guests today are Eric Goldstein, and he's the chief executive of the Office of School Support Services for the New York City Department of Education. They serve about, well, about 860,000 meals a day, which is a huge amount. And then we've got Mark Eisman, who's the director of the Natural Resources Defense Council's New York Urban Program and one of their senior attorneys. Welcome to Go Green Radio, gentlemen. So glad to have you on. Fantastic. We're excited to be here. Well, I'm excited to have you on. Eric, let's start with you. Um, I'd like to begin by having you tell our listeners about the Urban School Food Alliance, specifically when and how it formed and who's involved. And I'd also like for our listeners to kind of get a grasp of how many kids the Urban School Food Alliance is serving. Sure. The Urban School Food Alliance uh, came about in 2012, uh, really uh, when looking at some of the issues and problem sets we were facing in the school food world, uh, even as large urban areas, we felt that uh, we had you know, issues of scale uh, to which uh, some other school districts did not have to, um, to deal with. And we thought, how, what's the best way to try to achieve progressive, positive change? And looking at it, and we all were colleagues and discussing it with thought, well, we can either try to shrink out of problems or we can try to grow out of problems. And we decided to really pursue the latter strategy and to try to grow out of our problems by acting in a cooperative, uh, amalgamated kind of way. And um, we got together and we said, well, you know, sometimes within large organizations, whether they're uh, city agencies or school districts or even large companies, it's hard to get things done. Uh, and then when you look to do that in, a, in an interagency way across large organizations, a lot of people told us, hey, good luck with that. It's going to be next to impossible. <laughs> But, but we decided that it was going to be worth the lift. Uh, and, you know, as a first step, we got together as a group and we decided we had common values and common goals and common uh, challenges uh, and that we were going to first demonstrate that we could act in a coordinated way by synchronizing our menu for one day 
in March a couple of years ago, and we're all going to serve the same thing. So if you were a school child in Chicago or Miami or Los Angeles or Dallas or Orlando or New York City, we were going to serve uh, the same menu item, which was chicken on the bone and rice and a, a local fruit. And we did that. We pulled it off, and that sort of gave us some confidence that we can actually take it a step further. And then we met, and we decided, look, uh, one way to bring value into the cafeteria, and our cafeterias, we face a lot of challenges. One of the challenges we face is we're dependent uh, exclusively, really, on the reimbursement we get from the federal government for the school lunch program, and it's highly constrained. So from a, a food point of view, we're operating uh, for a lunch we could spend about a dollar twenty-five on food, which is not a lot of money. Uh, and wow. we thought, well, what's the best way we could try to bring value into our cafeteria? Uh, and looking at the ingredients uh, of the cafeteria and also the things that support the meals. And we decided the best place to start was to try to move off of the polystyrene trays, who we had uh, admittedly an uneasy relationship with. On one hand, it was um, inexpensive. And available, and we have large catering operations that we need to, uh, and obligations we need to fulfill. On the other hand, we were not fans of polystyrene. It wasn't compostable. We took a look at that. We looked at alternatives, and there was just nothing we can afford. We were trapped in by price. And again, we thought, hey, maybe we can grow out of this problem. So we decided to put out a joint bid for 271 million compostable plates. The trays cost us. Uh, a little under a nickel, uh, a tray, uh, and the plate, when we went to market initially, was coming in at about 12 cents. So the difference between the 5 cents and the 12 cents, certainly when you're looking at tremendous volume, was enough of a significant cost deterrent that we decided this is something that we couldn't do alone. But when we joined together and we put out such a large bid, we got industry to respond to it in a very favorable way, both in terms of the price they can offer, which is approximately about the same price as the tray, and also at the same time create for us a customized product, which is a round plate. I mean, a round plate is nothing new, but also in our world, because we're heavily regulated and we deal with small children who like their food segregated, is we set up the tray in a design kind of way to be um, segmented so it would be easier for us to serve, uh, to make sure we got reimbursed, easier for the kids to, to deal with a meal. So we're able, in that sense, to grow out of that problem. And the Urban School Food Alliance is six districts right now. You have New York City, you have Chicago, you have Los Angeles, you have Miami, Dallas, Orlando. There are about a little under uh, 2.9 million students enrolled. We serve about 470 million meals every year. Uh, wow. And we cover about uh, a little over 4,500 schools. So it's quite a large footprint. Mm -hmm. And who are the representatives, you know, that serve for the various school districts? Uh, are they your linear counterparts in the various districts, or are there a variety of uh, different people from each district who are participating in the alliance? Yeah, it's sort of like an all-star team. So if you were going to say, hey, let's put together an all-star team in, in, in school food, you have people in Chicago like Leslie Fowler, who runs the food program there. In New York City, there's Dennis Barrett. In Miami, there's Penny Parnum. In uh, Orange County, Orlando, there's um, Laura Gilbert. In Dallas, uh, at Dallas ISD, there is um, Dora Rivas. And in, Miami, and in Los Angeles, rather, you have uh, Laura Benavidez and you have uh, Michael Sharp. So people who are really, really expert uh, in 
delivering school food services to their, their districts. So real superstars. Outstanding. Now, Mark, I, I know that the Natural Resources Defense Council or the NRDC has been a vital nonprofit partner for the Alliance. And I'd love for you to talk to us about how that partnership developed and some of the specific ways that the NRDC has helped the Alliance. Well, first, thank you for inviting us to be on the show today. Uh, it's a great you show. Bet. And um, as some of your listeners may know, NRDC is a national environmental group. We actually have offices in Los Angeles, Chicago, New York, uh, and other cities. And uh, we also work, and we have been for a number of years, working to strengthen uh, the food systems in the country and get better food to our kids and others. And we had a meeting with Eric Goldstein and his team uh, about three years ago, um, and you know, NRDC is an advocacy group, and so sometimes we sue government, sometimes we work together with them, sometimes we try to push legislators or business to do the right thing. So I wasn't exactly sure how the meeting would go. We wanted to talk about ways in which we could improve school food, make it more sustainable in New York um, and in other places. And uh, we realized that we had a lot of mutual interest, that they wanted to get rid of the styrofoam plate. They wanted to work on buying chicken raised without antibiotics. And so we knew almost immediately from that meeting that there was an opportunity for NRDC to work directly with, with his, Eric and his team in, in these other cities around the country. That's fantastic. Um, and Eric, I know that, you know, this great big news that's just recently come out about the Alliance um, working with Hadamaki to create the compostable rounded school lunch plates. Um, I saw in a couple of different press pieces, you called it a game changer, this new product, a game changer. How do you define game changer in this instance? What does that mean? Well, you know, Again, we were stuck with these polystyrene trays, and we had no way to move off it. And um, really what we needed to do was, was really, I mean, literally change the game we were playing. We wanted to move out of a situation where we were beholden to a product that we weren't satisfied with, and we thought we, we could do better, except we had no pathway to get there. And the Alliance, in a very creative and ambitious way, frankly, uh, offered us the pathway to get there, and we were able to bring that value into the cafeteria where, you know, a year ago and, and before that, it was just an unattainable goal. And also mm -hmm. what we'd like to do in a de facto way is over time, uh, and this is going to take the manufacturer some time to catch up with it just because our demand is so huge, is really mm -hmm. set this new de facto standard for cafeterias across America where they can go from any trays, because then again, I don't know very many people who eat on trays at home. Everyone eats on something round, <laughs> right? Uh, right? So create more of that home-style feel and move off of the, the trays onto something that's not only round and symbolically important for what we want to do in our cafeterias and our schools, but also something that's economically wise and practical. So that's, mm -hmm. that's how you're changing the game. You're changing the game environmentally. You're changing the game in terms of the cafeteria culture. You're changing the game in terms of what we're educating our kids. And also, for us, symbolically, you build a meal from the plate up, and uh, you need to start with the plate. So across all those different ways, it's been, I think, very uh, innovative and, and game-changing. 
Mark, from a waste stream perspective, what is going to happen to these plates once the kids are finished with their meal? Well, you know, again, one of the reasons that uh, we wanted to work with the Urban School Food Alliance was the opportunity to do these big changes. And as Eric pointed out before, polystyrene is not compostable. Uh, Composting Mm -hmm. is one of the fastest growing uh, areas of recycling in the country. As much as 20 or 30 percent of the waste stream is made up of food waste and yard waste. And in schools, it's about 40 percent. So uh, NRDC had an opportunity to help the Urban School Food Alliance designed the plate to make sure that it could be composted. Uh, and now we're excited to be working with all the cities on developing composting programs that are beginning in New York and will be, and your, you know, your listeners will begin to see around the country. And t- over the last 20 or 30 years, we've developed recycling programs for metal, glass, and plastic and paper. Uh, and most of those programs now are relatively mature. The next frontier is is food and yard waste, and so uh, what's going to happen is the, the material now coming out of the, the cafeterias, which is made up of the food waste and this fully compostable plate, can be brought to uh, large-scale composting operations, and then that material can generate energy, and it also can be put back on our farms and gardens. Mm-hmm. We're going to take a quick break, but when we return, we'll have much more with Eric and Mark. So don't go away, folks. There's more Go Green Radio right after this. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%? 43%? Or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh, yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. If you are interested in real estate in America's largest city or anywhere, be sure to listen for Good Morning New York Real Estate with Vince Rocco. Although our focus is on Manhattan and other real estate markets in and around New York City, we'll have plenty of information that will help you successfully buy, sell, and close a transaction no matter where you are in the world. Good Morning New York Real Estate with Vince Rocco can be heard every Tuesday at 9 a.m. in New York, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com
You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. Just in case you've only recently tuned in, let me catch you up. Um, Our guests today are Eric Goldstein, the Chief Executive of the Office of School Support Services for the New York City Department of Education, and Mark Eisman, who is the Director of the Natural Resources Defense Council's New York Urban Program and Senior Attorney. And we're talking today about a big news item that just came out of the Urban School Food Alliance. Um, They've made a move to create a compostable round plate for school lunches uh, that will uh, eliminate and replace polystyrene trays from school cafeterias in six of the largest school districts in the country. Before we went to break, Mark was talking about what will happen to these compostable plates um, you know, once the kids are finished with their lunch, the hope is that, that they'll be composted along with other organics. But, Mark, my question for you is, if we have municipalities um, in this Urban School Food Alliance or if this product should spread to other school districts and they don't currently have composting opportunities, it's not always easy in every area of the country to get composting going, you know what what's going to happen then and if they can't compost right away what would be the benefit of switching to a compostable food service item okay well let, let's take that in two parts uh, first sure. it's important to just remember that uh getting rid of polystyrene out of the cafeterias is a good thing it's a petroleum based plastic that is a solid waste burden and environmental burden around the country uh mm-hmm. It's all virtually sent to landfills where it remains intact for hundreds of years and releases pollutants into the air and water. Uh, Polystyrene also breaks into little pieces, uh, and it's disproportionate part of our litter problem in city streets and parks, along beaches. And polystyrene is also one of the primary components of marine debris, where it's harmful to birds and marine animals. So Mm -hmm. getting... Moving that out is is a good thing in and of itself. Uh, also, polystyrene is not compostable. And as we talked about right before the break, uh, cities around the country and towns have put in place metal, glass, plastic, paper recycling programs. In fact, more people recycle in the United States than vote, um, more <laughs> than 50%. And the next wave of, recyc- of the recycling will be food waste and yard waste. And Mm -hmm. what we learned when the recycling program started is that for businesses to build recycling plants to to handle all the metal, glass, and plastic and paper, there needs to be a clean stream of that material. So back Mm -hmm. in the late 80s and early 90s, you didn't have a clean stream of paper, for example. But once New York City, as just used as an example, established its mandatory recycling program in 1989, uh, New York City got what was the largest uh, plant that ever been built in decades. A $500 million paper mill was built here in New York City because it knew that it could 
it was going to every day get a clean source of paper. So that's mm-hmm. what will likely happen with composting. Um, the first step is to develop a clean stream of composting material coming out of the schools and coming out of homes. Uh, but before, if it's mixed in with polystyrene, that material is not compostable. So um, we, we think that uh, over time, you're going to see composting available in all, all municipalities around the country because it's, it's such a large part of the waste stream. And for cities that want to reduce their solid waste costs and not be sending it all to landfills, this is the area they're going to be focusing on. Mm-hmm. Now, Eric, I know that you have heard this, and we talked a little bit about this in the first segment, but you know, most of the time when school districts are posed with the concept of replacing their polystyrene trays with something compostable or with a product that's recyclable, their number one pushback is it costs too much. Was it simply the fact that the Urban School Food Alliance could create such volume buying that you were able to bridge the cost, or was there some other factor, some other way that you were able to bridge the gap on cost between the polystyrene trays and this new compostable product? Well, I think, I think it's a combination of two things. One, the, the, I should say that the plates are about a penny uh, more expensive than the trays, but about mm-hmm. seven or eight cents less expensive than the bid had we not come out in force in a cooperative bid. But mm-hmm. let me just back up uh, for a second and explain that a little bit. So, you know, two things needed to happen to get the price down from about the, the 12 uh, cent mark to the range of the affordable. Uh, one was, for sure, you needed the volume. You needed to aggregate as much volume as possible, and that's just not easy to do. Uh, and mm-hmm. the second thing, you needed the will, uh, the will to do it and the will to, to see the results through. Because, uh, you know, uh, any type of procurement in a large uh, entity, certainly in government, is a very laborious uh, and complex exercise. So you need really the, the will to be able to see it through. So the amalgamation of the volume and then the will to see it through, it is a little bit more expensive uh, for the plate itself. But you need to draw back that lens and take that bigger look. Uh, you know, New York City, uh, for instance, and now all of our schools use the compostable plate. We've gone full, full district. Um, you know, we were spending a tremendous amount of money exporting our garbage to, you know, mm-hmm. uh, landfill in South Carolina and Pennsylvania and Ohio, uh, and all the other money that went into it. And, you know, so from a city point of view, a municipal point of view, it's well, well worth the investment and much, much cheaper. From a district mm-hmm. point of view and certainly a school food point of view, it is slightly more expensive. But, you know, just like when you buy something in a supermarket, you can have different offsets, and how you manage your basket, you know, you can manage your mm-hmm. basket to your overall budget. And one item being a penny more, it's not going to make or break uh, your overall shopping to your local supermarket. It's the same thing here in school food. We have uh, budgets that um, we're able to to manage uh, to make sure we can absorb that penny. Mm-hmm. Now, Mark, I know that, you know, just on the outset, it looks like this is great. We're going to be composting versus, you know, sending essentially styrofoam to the landfills. But I'd like for you to enumerate some of the environmental benefits that you foresee as a result of this landmark deal, uh, both at the local level for, you know, local districts who are going to be implementing this, but on a broader scale, what are the environmental upshots of this of this situation? Well, um Again, just to 
underscore what I said a few minutes ago. The first benefit is getting the polystyrene out of the the cafeterias, um, getting it out of uh, the litter and the, the landfills that towns uh, is a, suffer from. And so that's that's one benefit, and that's both a benefit at the local level and a benefit uh, nationally because there's a trend. It's part of a larger effort of cities around the country to get rid of polystyrene and and other forms of plastic that are are real solid waste and environmental burden. Another mm. big benefit, as Eric has alluded to, uh, is that by uh, buying this compostable plate, you're driving demand for this sustainable product. Again, just uh, taking a page from the history books, although recent history, uh, when the federal government back in 1993, President Clinton announced that all federal agencies were only going to buy uh, recycled paper. That was, mm -hmm. there were, you know, yes, there's there's quite a lot of government agencies, and some some listeners probably think there's too many, and some probably think there's too little. But but it wasn't it wasn't so much just that the the federal government was going to start buying recycled paper. It sent a signal to the marketplace that this is. Uh, this is the next trend, and that uh, that federal order helped to stimulate investment in new pay, pay, uh, recycling mills. So it's mm -hmm. the same thing here. If the big, the largest cities in the country that are serving our kids are saying we're going to start buying this, that's not only going to have an impact directly on those kids in those cities, but it's going to have uh, an impact on the the purchasing of more sustainable products. In this case, the compostable trays and their the alliance also has moved on buying chicken without antibiotics, so it has a, a ripple uh, slash market effect. It sure does, and it's funny that you mentioned that particular example of the executive order because I was in the Navy at the time that that was implemented, and I was our command inspection officer, and the way that that trickled down to us is that um, actually it was my job to get our command ready for an admiral's inspection that happens every three years, and there was a probably three-inch thick binder of things we had to do over the course of the year to be ready for that animal's inspection. And one of those items was to ensure that we were purchasing recycled content paper and also recycling that paper. And as a result of what I learned by, you know, doing that for my command in the Navy when I became a civilian mom involved in my kids' schools, that's what prompted me to start a recycling program, which has turned into the Go Green Initiative, which is now the largest environmental education program in the country. So the ripple effect of those kinds of things are uh, can, can be yeah, unexpected that's, that's, and tremendous. <laughs> yeah, that's, so, that's great to hear. Yeah. Um, so, Eric, I know that a lot of school districts around the country are going to be listening in to us, and they're going to be looking to the Urban School Food Alliance for leadership. I'd love for you, in the couple minutes that we have before break, to share some of the top-level lessons learned from this process of bringing a new product to fruition? What advice can you give other school districts that are looking to follow in your steps? Well, you know, I think there's a big demand uh, for, for this type of uh, endeavor that we've embarked on, which is to go out to uh, industry in America who's eager uh, uh, to, 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 to make business, frankly, uh, but go out with them to, with some very clear direction in a cooperative kind of way uh, and 
you know, you could really, as Mark said, end up driving the markets, and that's what we're doing with this plate and, and participating in that with the antibiotic chicken and some of the other things we have. Uh, but it's a new endeavor. It takes some time, and there's some learning that goes along the way, and it does, it does take some time for governments to do a procurement. It's perhaps not as quick as the private sector, but it's, it's longer and deeper, and, and one could make the argument more sustainable. So there is some patience involved, and I know that Hunamaki and their plant up in Waterville, Maine, it's a, it's a Made in America product, which we're also very excited about, um, mm-hmm. is that uh, you know, they, they are uh, running at full capacity. And some other districts have come to us and to them and said, we'd like to join on. And I believe their response at the moment is, we'd love to as well. At the moment, we are running really full bore trying to meet the demand of these large cities. But I think that, and certainly my hope, is that over time, again, this creates that de facto standard. And, you know, we we share everything we do. We're not doing anything in a proprietary fashion. So we would love, uh, over time, when industry adapts for um, other districts to participate in, in the plates and the other things we're doing. Fantastic. Well, we're going to take a quick commercial break, but we have much more to discuss with Eric and Mark, so don't go away, folks. There's more Go Green Radio right after this. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh, yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Get ready for some lively discussion on Barely Controlled Radio with Jeff Reed. From sports to relationships to current events and more, pretty much anything is on the table. Besides being a place kicker for the Super Bowl champion Pittsburgh Steelers, Jeff Reed is also a journalist, blogger, and opinionist. And he's ready to talk to you and tackle the issues that you've been wanting to talk about. Tune in to Barely Controlled Radio every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time and 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. In case you've just tuned in, our guests 
today are Eric Goldstein, who's the Chief Executive of the Office of School Support Services for the New York City Department of Education, and Mark Eisman, who's the Director of the Natural Resources Defense Council's New York Urban Program and Senior Attorney. Mark, this question is for you. You know, when positive things like this happen in schools. The hope is that someone will explain it to the students so they can glean some environmental education from initiatives like this um, that adults undertake for their benefit. Although sometimes we see school districts doing great things like, you know, making their schools energy efficient or what have you, but um, it's never translated into a teachable moment for the kids. So I've got a two-part question for you. Um, First of all, what lessons do you think kids can learn by having eco-friendly plates for their school meals? And secondly, how do you envision adults on campus actually teaching kids these lessons? Well, that's that's a great question. I have two kids in public school, and, and so uh, I can see firsthand what excites them and what or what they're not even paying attention to. And <laughs> um, you know, the, I think the answer to your the first question is that. Uh, and, and Eric talked about this a little bit. I mean, the meal starts with the plate. Uh, it's hard to talk about sustainability and good health, um, and we, you know, need to remember that we have a real epidemic of childhood obesity, diabetes, uh, other food-related diseases. Uh, it's hard to start talking about those things when when the plate is on a styrofoam. A rectangular tray that has all sorts of environmental problems and is really the opposite of green and and sustainability. So mm-hmm. uh, you can also you then also as the kids are beginning to put them, you can teach them and show them that as they're putting their tray into the bin, what's going to happen with it. It's also a teachable moment to use your uh, perfect expression about food waste uh, because. The composting is tied to food waste. They they can begin to think about what they're putting on their plate, what they're eating, and what's being thrown away because it's a whole cycle. Um, mm-hmm. On your second question, um, the the adults there there needs there's an opportunity for again for the the teachers and the people and the and the people in the cafeterias to talk about these things to talk about why the the plate was was the change was made about the importance of eating well, uh, the other kinds of changes in, in food they're making. And um, it is important that that there be sort of almost a curriculum of sorts on this mm-hmm. on the new composting and on the new food that's being served so that it's not lost on the students. And, and more importantly, that it really has a direct impact on making them healthier and making the schools healthier. Mm-hmm. Well, and that's one of the things that I'm hoping as well, Mark. I'm hoping that at a minimum there might be some kind of signage or something in the cafeteria area to make sure that the kids even know that they're eating on a special plate, you know, that they know what this is all about. Um, sometimes these changes can be invisible to them. Eric, um, I understand that the Alliance is also going to be rolling out compostable cutlery, and I'd love for you to talk to us about this project. Yeah, no, we're very excited about this. I mean, we wanted, uh, right now we use a plastic spork, and just like with the rectangular polystyrene tray, we're just not happy with it, and it was always a difficult situation to move off. But having been very successful with the plate, compostable plate, it's given us the, the strength and the determination to move forward with the uh, a bid uh, for the compostable 
cutlery, which we should be hopefully getting out in the next um, couple of months. And we want to move, uh, again, away from plastic onto something compostable. And we want to move off of the spork, because we're not big spork fans, onto actual <laughs> cutlery, a, a knife, a fork, a spoon, uh, whatever it may be, just because, you know, we have some great meals. And certainly it's, mm-hmm. it's hard to watch some of the kids struggle with the spork. So, uh, again, people don't use sporks at home, and uh, we want to stop using them in schools. Well, just for the sake of helping some of our schools navigate you know, a path that's similar to what you've done. I know that one of the most challenging things about creating innovations like this in school districts is that you're subject to local and state and federal regulations that dictate the contracting process. And I can envision some of our listeners looking at the new plate design that the Alliance is rolling out and wanting to buy the same thing, as you mentioned, for their school districts. But I can also envision that some of our schools may feel that a different design would work better for them. In that instance, can you help other school districts understand how to create an RFP for a contract on a new product that doesn't exist? Yeah, I'm not going to sugarcoat it. It's extremely difficult and a laborious <laughs> process. And, um, you know, I think working with industry, it's easier to narrow down the specs that you're asking for than it is to widen it. So, for instance, you'll end up getting better pricing on uh, a, a plate where a lot of people can agree to its specifications than for, you know, 10 districts asking a manufacturer for pricing on 10 different style plates. So you mm-hmm. get a benefit from the economies of scale, which is the, uh, the price reduction, uh, and perhaps, uh, you know, some criticism on the economies of scale and that the choice is limited. But you mm-hmm. can't have everything, uh, at least not all at once, and you have to decide what's more important. We... Uh, spends a lot of time looking at price and value. We're in a very price-sensitive environment. Uh, you know, it's taxpayer dollars. We've got to make sure we spend them in a responsible, meaningful, appropriate manner. Uh, and at mm-hmm. the same time, wanted to have something, of course, that works in the cafeterias, operationally uh, very efficient, uh, designed sort of beautifully. The milk carton stands in the middle. It's really, it really looks nice. There's some pictures on the urbanschoolfoodalliance.org website uh, you can see. Um, but, yeah, sometimes there are always trade-offs. And, uh, again, don't want to sugarcoat it. It's a, it's a very, very difficult thing to pull off. Mm-hmm. Well, I appreciate your candor, and I know that our school districts who are listening in will as well. You know, Mark, for some areas of the country, and I know there are even parts in California, which everybody thinks California's got it going on when it comes to everything green, but even in some parts of California, you know, waste haulers really don't have a good place to take compost. Um, either because of zoning issues or, you know, environmental issues, the climate, you know, isn't perfect for it, and uh, all number of different reasons. Um, so I'm wondering, but we are hearing a lot more about um, bringing anaerobic digesters to create energy online in different communities. Could these plates and, and the food waste on them be used in such an, a device, and would that be a sound environmental and economic move? So let me let me answer that in three parts. Uh, first, you know, just to, again to set the stage, food waste constitutes almost one third of the general waste stream, and up to forty percent in schools. And so, for this reason, more and more jurisdictions, including uh, Massachusetts, Connecticut, Vermont, New York City, are imposing bans on the disposal of organic material and landfills to both lower solid waste costs and reduce landfill-generated um, greenhouse gas emissions. Um, 
Second, the uh, when we talk about composting, it, that word is sort of a generalized word. So the, the, the really interesting question is that using this material to generate energy, in addition, is a good thing, and it, if it's done the right way, and it can be economical. Um, the the key is that you want to have a clean supply, a clean material, so you're not mixing it with traditional garbage. And and sometimes there are proposals out there that are sound great. This is we're going to take all this garbage and generate energy, and it, it actually creates pollution problems. But if it's done, if you're taking, for example, food waste with these types of plates and you have the right facility, you can generate energy. Uh, the second part is that you need to take the residue. So once you've actually created the energy, you have a, a, there's the material that almost looks like compost. And that, it's important that that be reused on farms and gardens and not just be sent to landfills. So again, just mm -hmm. I, I don't mean to get too technical on this, this call, but it, when you start talking about anaerobic digestion, it is a little bit complicated. So again, quick summary, yes, it's a good thing, done the right way, not mixing with traditional garbage. Second, that you're uh, taking the residue that would be left at the bottom of the digester and reusing that on farms and gardens and not just be sending that to landfills because that's an important part of the overall process. Mm -hmm. Eric, you know, we do have school districts like your own that have composting opportunities. Um, is this a cost avoidance um, opportunity? I mean, is there money to be saved? You mentioned that the compostable uh, plates are, you know, a little bit more expensive than a polystyrene just by a penny or so. Um, could that difference be made up with cost avoidance on the waste hauling side? You know, talk to us about the business case for pulling compostables out of the waste stream. Yeah, look, it all depends on your uh, timeline and that lens around the timeline and, uh, of course, the the opportunity to do the right thing for, for future generations. Look, change is, is never easy. It's difficult. And, um, but what we try to do with an economy to scale through the Urban School for the Alliance is for the step of bringing in compostable plates, uh, bring it into the range of the affordable. So on our own, the school food organizations and the school districts could afford this. And then whatever uh, benefit that then brings, and in New York City it brings a tremendous amount of benefit in terms of cost avoidance of having to export trash and, and of course, then longer, longer down the road in terms of what it means for uh, just, you know, global warming and all the environmental things that uh, matter a great deal. Uh, you know, it all, it all comes together. So we're very, very comfortable that as an entity uh, this is value for us that we could afford uh, it also helps uh, our, our city at large uh, and, and other municipalities to take part in this in terms of managing their, their waste streams. And, of course, you know, the long, long term, hopefully it's long, long term and not shorter term, it's just good for the planet and our children and it's the right thing to do. And, you know, in that sense, um, you know, we spend a lot of time and money on, uh, on national security, uh, things that are vitally important for this country and, you know, if I could make a humble remark, I would, I would put this in that category. The environment matters for, for our survival, and we need to do uh, all those things that are within our power to make sure that um, we're good stewards for this planet. Absolutely. Well said. We're going to take a quick commercial break and let everybody uh, 
digest that great thought. And when we come back, we have much more with Mark Eisman and Eric Goldstein. So don't go away, folks. There's more Go Green Radio right after this. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh, yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. How do you achieve the utmost success in your life, career, faith, relationships, and more? It's all here in the business of living with host Scott Ventrella. Scott has experience as an executive coach, sought-after speaker, and lecturer. He and his guests will offer practical solutions and strategies to help you move to the next level of success no matter where you are in your life and career. The Business of Living airs live every Saturday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. This next question is for you, Eric. Um, as the chairman of the Urban School Food Alliance, I don't want to leave our listeners with the impression that you guys are just a, a you know, a group dedicated to buying plates. Um, you're about much, much more than that. And your members are also advocating for sound policy. And I'd like to give you a chance to speak to three specific recommendations that you have um, regarding revisions to the child nutrition reauthorization of 2015. The first one um, is to significantly invest in farm economies and children by increasing the USDA food dollars spent by school districts. Talk to us about that, if you would. Yeah, sure. You know, the Urban School Food Alliance, and I would encourage uh, your listeners to visit us at the urbanschoolfoodalliance.org. That's urbanschoolfoodalliance.org. Uh, we're about a lot of things. We put out standards for antibiotic-free chicken, uh, which was uh, very important for us, and bids are coming out in all our districts, uh, again, to, to push that along. Uh, we would love at some point to focus on uh, organic produce and help move the organic markets in a meaningful, progressive, uh, and large way. Uh, but, you know, at the heart of all this is the, the funding that school districts get from Washington. And every few years, there's something called the Child Nutrition Reauthorization Act, and that's the act uh, in Congress that allocates funding for for school districts, for school meals is coming out. And one thing that we would really love Congress to consider is to increasing what's called the commodity 
dollar allocation. That's an allocation, a formula based on the number of meals served, and that's money that has to be spent uh, specifically on food. And that's money that uh, you know benefits American farmers and American companies and the workers at the American companies, but also, uh, very importantly, our schools and the children who eat our meals. So we'd like to be able to move from spending a dollar twenty-five on a meal to I don't know a dollar fifty, a dollar seventy-five, perhaps you know if we're lucky, even two dollars. And those uh, sort of incremental changes can have a disproportionate impact on what we buy and how we serve it especially when you put it uh, through the lens of sort of cooperative buying. Uh, the alliance is one way to do it. It's certainly not the only way to do it. Other districts can get together and do it on their own. Uh, but you certainly need that, that firepower uh, to sort of spend more money on food. The other thing uh, we'd love to see is something called getting rid of congregant feeding, uh, especially during summertime when we spend a lot of effort to try to feed children uh, when they're not in school, especially a lot of our children are in the categories of free and reduced-priced uh, children. These are low-income children, and they need uh, a lot of help, uh, as all children do. Uh, and the third thing we're looking to do is we'd love to be in a situation where, just like textbooks or anything else you get in school, nobody has to pay for school lunch. Uh, it's just part of the process. Uh, we believe very, very strongly that meals and food should be part of the educational day, an integral part of it, not in addition to. And I think we, you know, started a discussion in our school districts and across the country on how we think about school lunch and what lunch is. You know, what is a cafeteria? Is it a place for recreation? Is it a place for learning? Is it a place for eating? And really start those discussions and try to move along the continuum of taking food, uh, of what we eat and how we eat it uh, more seriously. Mm-hmm. Mark, you know, because you at the NRDC look at a broad range of environmental impacts when, you know, various policies are put in place, there's been a, a big movement, not just within school communities, of course, but across the country to shorten supply chains and to promote local sourcing. Are you at all concerned that combining the purchasing power of several large you know, buyers that are really spread out across the country will undermine those efforts to promote local sourcing and shorter supply chains in any way? No, no that's not a concern. The, the Urban School Food Alliance approach is a nice balance between national and regional. And, you know, Eric can correct me, but I, I heard him speak once and say that uh, New York City buys 25 million New York State apples a year. Uh, so for all the districts, there's an interest in uh, buying regionally to support their local economies, and but balancing that also with ensuring that the food is sustainable. So it's uh, right now our food system is tilted way too far to a centralized um, industrialized food system, and we need a more diverse system, which includes strength in regional systems. But mm-hmm. it's a balance, and uh, Eric and his leadership and team you know understand that and have been working with us and others to to move forward in a way that combines again both sort of understanding how we can move the national market but also working to strengthen the regional food systems mhm now eric you made um, a reference to the um, antibiotic free chicken that you'll be uh, serving up in the 2015-2016 school year um does this initiative cover just fresh chicken that's used in school kitchens, or is it also going to extend to chicken products that come to schools in prepackaged 
um, school food items. It's mostly the latter. You know, we don't uh, take in raw protein into our cafeterias just because we mm-hmm. focus uh, very much on food safety issues. Um, mm-hmm. So, but you know, we we get you know chicken on the bone or other chicken products that come to us um, in a way that um, uh, you know we can rethermalize and and deal with appropriately. But we don't we don't take in uh, raw protein into our into our schools. Mm-hmm. And how did you, what kind of steps did you have to take in order to ensure there was an adequate supply of antibiotic-free chicken? I know that this has been an issue for several restaurant chains that have, you know, tried to do the same thing. How did you, how did you get to that point where you knew that there would be enough to supply your school district with that product? Well, it's a great question. I mean, as Mark was saying, and I just want to touch back on the local thing, there's still, I mean, our basket of goods that we buy at school district is very, very large, and the local portion is very prominent, and it's been growing in years. But there are some things like chicken, at least for New York City, it's not a local product and probably mm-hmm. will never be a local product. Apples, milk, these things are, you know, some of the uh, green leaf vegetables are, are very local for us. Other stuff, not so much. Uh, and chicken's one of them. But, you know, we went out and talked to the major chicken companies, of which there are a handful, and said this is the direction we want to move. Somebody's going to get our business. And um, this, is, this is an absolute minimum standard we require. And um, through those discussions, we were able to, to get companies that were indeed interested in participating and partnering up, which is an important way that, in frankly, in, in, in modern America, how you make progressive change. Absolutely. And I love your SAS because, you know, a lot of school districts that I have spoken with um, just feel like, well, we're sort of victims of whatever's, you know, in the catalog and that's all we can purchase. And I love the way that you and the folks that are part of the Urban School Food Alliance have stood up and said, no. Uh, we're the we're the customers here, and customers always write, and this is what we want. So you know, you've used the power of the purse very well, and I I'm excited to see that. You know, Mark, I'd love for you to spend a minute or so talking about the the impact um, of such large volume buyers on the antibiotic free movement. Um, you know, give us just a snapshot of of what's happening in that space. Well, it's the dominoes are falling. Uh, in this area of antibiotic-free uh, meat, really, you know, chicken, but also uh, more traditional beef. Um, you had, among other things last year, the Urban School Food Alliance's large announcement. You had also had companies like Applegate, Chipotle, Panera Bread, uh, making important commitments to antibiotic-free options. Uh, Chick-fil-A, uh, another one, and then the most recent one, and I think you even highlighted this, I think, on a recent show, was McDonald's. So yep. you're you're seeing, you could almost say we've reached the tipping point uh, mm-hmm. on this issue, where the industry uh, understands that there's a there's a demand for that, and the Urban School Food Alliance has played an important role in uh, wonderful in this movement. Well, gentlemen, I can't thank you enough for spending an hour with us here on Go Green Radio. I know that what you've had to say is going to inspire a lot of school districts around the country, and so I thank you so much for being with us. Folks, I thank you for joining us, all of our listeners. We're going to be here same time, same place next week with more Go Green Radio. Until then, have a wonderful week and do something in your life to go green.
Did you get some terrific ideas from today's show? Please join us for more next Friday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time. It's Go Green Radio with Jill Buck here on Voice America. Go Green Radio is proudly sponsored by Covanta Energy, a leader in providing renewable energy solutions for a cleaner world. Visit www.covantaenergy.com for more information. We'll see you here next week.